Goodman. And I continue to be Sarah Merle. Every day you're Sarah Merle? Every day. It's not always <laughs> as comfortable as most days. So Sarah, uh, what are you eating and what's eating you? Uh, right before, I have kind of a um, magical secret garden situation in my backyard. Um, and I was kind of, uh, you know, stomping around and picking raspberries and feeding them directly into my mouth. And uh, right now, uh, the black raspberries. So I got, I stole some of these plants uh, from uh, Crown Hill Cemetery, which is like the really famous historic cemetery in the central district of Indianapolis. And they grow uh, all along the perimeter of the outside of the sort of wooded portion that's not yet developed of the uh, cemetery. So before I moved here, uh, as kind of a, um, you know, remembrance of my old house, I dug up one of their, uh, one of their little shoots and I brought it over here and now it's making beautiful black raspberries and they are absolutely delicious. That's amazing. Uh, raspberries right off. I mean, right. Uh, that's, that sounds heavenly. It's something I did a lot as a kid that I haven't done in a long oh. time. Yeah. Oh, so I am jealous. That, that definitely gave me flashback vibes. Well, if you ever come here in June, uh, we can go raspberry picking in my backyard. It's pretty dope. What about you? What are you eating and what's eating you? <laughs> um so i uh i've had a busy day so i managed to cram some mac and cheese in my face hell yeah <laughs> um you know what sometimes you just gotta eat what you got and that that's what i had uh readily on hand <laughs> uh, and what's eating me is well i mean i i'm i'm hoping to get a real first amendment specialist to talk about this but the uh most one of the most recent rulings by the Supreme Court with the praying football coach. Yep. Um, though what's eating me is that the opening line of Justice Gorsuch's uh, opinion is a lie. Good, good. Sounds like we're off to a great start. Yeah. So that that bothered me. <laughs> can you can you point out? I, I haven't even read it. What is the what is the lie? Um, it's the characterization of the coach's conduct. And actually he was um, the particular coach who was a football coach at a high school who um, was asked by his, uh, by the high school not to pray openly with, with players loudly um, to the Christian God um, mm. at the 50 yard line of the field, because they thought that it, uh, it, it felt like a formal event that the uh, some of the players had mentioned that they felt pressured into into participating even uh -huh. though they didn't want to they thought it was a church state issue public high school yep um the judge had been tried to characterize this as like sort of a private prayer moment that he, mm. yeah okay and he had been um smacked down a little bit by the court of appeals for repeatedly mischaracterizing and lying about what his actual behavior was. Great. Great. And the unfortunate part is that the majority's opinion written by justice Gorsuch, um, continues to repeat those lies. So like, so we're dealing with one of those situations. This was a big problem. Like this was a big write up, um, about the army a few years ago that, you know, as, military bases move uh, to more rural uh, red states that like, if you go there, the Christian fascism is so powerful in these communities that it's like, well, 
you know, the idea that you can just like opt out or say like, no, thanks is like, that's not, that's a, that's a, a silly and facile reading of what's actually going on, you know? Yeah. And like the air force at one point was doing an internal investigation into how a particularly, particularly um, fervent strand of evangelical Christianity had sort of um, taken hold in the air force. Oh yeah. And I think it actually was the air force. I think I'm, I'm confusing these two things, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not great. Um, it's not great. It's not great. Um, can I say that, uh, the same, like the, the same reason that I left the church is what keeps coming up is like the reason that these rulings are in people's favor, which is Christianity has a wild, um, uh, sort of edict to its followers. Um, that I, I personally believe is like kind of a misinterpretation of what Jesus said, but it's like, you have to go out and spread the good news of Jesus. Like it is your responsibility to tell specifically people of other religions that they are wrong and should convert <laughs> to Christianity. And I was like, Oh, I don't, I was, I was really into like, when we just like fix those, that people's, those poor people's roof, can we just do more roof fixing? And it was like, no, no. No, you have to do something way more intrusive than that, actually. I mean, there's an old joke is, uh, what do you get when you cross a Jehovah's Witness with an atheist? Oh, no, what? Someone who knocks on your door in the middle of the night for no reason. (laughs) 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 I I have no problem with, uh, uh, with some versions of any religion, that there are a lot of, uh, great Christians. I know there are a lot of great, everybody I know it's really up to the human being. Um, I, I am staunchly in the religion as practice camp that whatever you do is what you actually worship. So if you spend your time being a hateful bigot, then that's what you're actually worshiping. If you spend your time helping the poor and, uh, the needy, no matter whether or not you, uh, view yourself in a religious or non-religious lens, that's also, that's what you worship. It's is giving to, to the to those in need. So that's how I very much um, view people's faith, not through what they say, but how they live their lives. Oh my gosh. I remember like my, you know, my family is very conservative and I remember growing up, um, people with tattoos, like tattoos are still very controversial in the Murrell family. Uh, but you know, it was like uh, the uh, moralistic terms were applied to it, like 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 scummy. And and then mm. I went to go hang out at these places, like the hardcore club in Evansville. I think it was like 1123 or something. But anyway, what I found is all these people that were like incredibly caring and, uh, you know, like uh, very community oriented and like making sure that everyone felt safe. Um, and then that was when that that idea finally crystallized <laughs> for me, which is like, oh, you can just say you believe whatever you want. Holy shit. People can just say they believe whatever they want. You do whatever you want after that. And like, man, it feels like some people are kind of like using this stated belief as like some kind of shield for something. I don't know. Uh. It's it's always an interesting moment when people who've grown up in extremely insular religious communities actually come into contact with the rest of the world. Um, (laughs) I remember uh, I had some Mormon friends who had been told that, you know, drinking alcohol, you can't do it. It's not dangerous in any amount. That'll make you a raging alcoholic. And um, they came over to some parties um, 
and they saw a bunch of people, you know, having a few beers, but you know, we're grad students. It wasn't anything particularly yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah. And they just realized like that was all a lie. Yep. Um, that was all a lie. And so then in their thirties, they, they started drinking. Yep. Um, so that was fun trying to teach them how to drink <laughs> uh, resp- responsibly. And I remember <laughs> we're you know- at one bar <laughs> And uh, my my friend, she's she's very petite. She had her first. It was called the Harry Bear because that's where the name of the bar was Bear's Place. A shout oh, out to boy. Bloomington. Uh, shout out to Bloomington. Um, but <laughs> uh, it was really just a, a jacked up Long Island. Mm-mm. And you know she's drinking and drinking and drinking it, and then at one point she's kind of goes quiet for a bit. And then she raises the the empty glass to her mouth and then just barfs into the glass. No! Oh, no. <laughs> but I'm just like, oh, you're like an 18-year-old learning how to drink. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, wait. I know that this isn't really what we're doing this podcast for, but since we're on the subject of hilarious friends throwing up stories, I took my friend Michael Karst, who is now uh, an attorney in the state of Ohio, uh, but he's also six foot seven with bright red hair. He just looks like he could be the stand-in for Conan O'Brien. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, he dressed up as a leprechaun to go to a house party where he drank a lot of red drink, a lot of red drink, a lot. Uh, and I want you to think, imagine him. He's wearing a sparkly vest. He really looks like uh, like a kind of a low end casino dealer. Uh, and then at some point he comes back to our apartment and when he b- begins to projectile vomit, he's just sort of like turning around in circles confusedly looking for the bathroom. <laughs> so at six foot seven, he's just raining oh. red vomit hell down on our apartment in circles and oh. uh, finally made it to the bathroom with like had to be just like a little bit of puke left in him. But um, I mean, it was like on the walls, like a murder scene. It was hysterical. <laughs> And now he'd be happy to to represent your civil rights uh, in a conflict with your former employer. So yes, exactly. Like <laughs> I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that there is a moment for every uh, every person who's you know watching the Utes um, <laughs> go through their self exploration that they're like, holy fuck, these are the people we're going to be leaving the world to. Because uh, like I remember after a particularly long night of partying with a friend of mine, I I I passed out and I woke up. And my head was in a Darth Maul inflatable chair. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't have a shirt on. I don't know where the shirt went. I never found it. Um, (laughs) And I wake up and I just see my friend's mom (laughs) standing over me. And she's like, hey, Matt. I'm like, hey, Mrs. M. How are you? She's like, "Uh, I have some bagels and locks. Do you want some? I'm like, oh, my God. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and she she asked no questions. She didn't mention I didn't have a shirt on. It was just like you know, mom was here to to take care of everyone, and it was, was it was the nicest thing. I was gonna say like I think that falls into that category of like I'm glad my kids are safe. Like I'm glad my kids felt safe to come back to our house, and I know where they are, so it's all good. <laughs> it wasn't her house? It was just. Oh, it was just the college. Uh, it was just the, the the dorm room, but she oh, had come it. by. She had just come by to take care of her son, and I just happened to be there. I want to mention I did not go to school there. Oh, okay. So now it was it's doubly all confusing. Together. It was Got doubly it. confusing why she would see me there. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good night. That was a night where I almost hooked up with someone, but they were a Red Sox fan, so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
speaking of um speaking of uh you know the way that we are punished and life punishes us and we punish ourselves uh you know not to be a bummer but we got kind of a rogue court situation going on and uh now like um a lot of us don't have like bodily autonomy anymore and i guess my question is like first of all what the fuck um and secondly um how how do we bring these bitches down and i mean that in a legal non-molotov cocktail fashion uh from local all the way up to federal Okay, so let's start um, with local courts. And again, this is something that Mrs. M did not anticipate me talking about uh, (laughs) that morning, (laughs) nor would she have believed me uh, had I said anything. So local courts are the – let's start on a high note, right? Local courts are the ones that you probably have the most influence over. Mm. Um, You as a citizen in the world, active in your community, Uh, depending on where you live – your local judge may not even be a lawyer. Your local oh, judge. Oh. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of different places like say Texas or New York um, and New York. It's by law. There are essentially people who are justices of the peace. They're called different things, different places. And so check the rules. You can run in a lot of these places without having gone to law school. Oh boy. Oh boy. So this leads to both good and bad things. First, for those of you who didn't go to law school, it means that you can still get involved because if you don't like your local judge, you can run against them. Okay. Which is which is great because they're probably not a lawyer either. But what if you don't like your local judge because they believe that Joe Biden fairly won the 2020 <laughs> election and that's why you want to be a judge now? Well, I would say in that case, um, you should never vote. <laughs> and <laughs> you should, I, I would say that if, if all of our listeners, I believe, just based on demographics, all believe things like Joe Biden is the rightful president. Yeah. Um, they don't, they didn't wait for the reemergence of Q, which recently happened. Yeah. Um, or, or, uh, you know, the, um, the living JFK Jr., of course. Yeah. Yep. So I'm going to say that the best thing you can do is to find out who your local judge is and see what, and look at their record, right? Look at what they, how they've been ruling, look at um, what they've said publicly. And if you don't like that, run against them. Or if you can't run against them, find somebody who will and then help organize their campaign. Because this is a place where small amounts of money go a really long way. Mm. So for all those people who like want to get involved and do something uh, meaningful, it's not necessarily great to throw, you know, thousands of dollars at, you know, a long shot Senate candidate in like Alabama. Don't bother. (laughs) It makes a lot more sense to invest a thousand dollars here, $500 there into these small races, because that money really has an has a uh, amplifying effect. The second thing is that, there needs to be that the second thing you can do on a local level is there are all sorts of um, community events, usually in terms of community politics, hmm. right? Local county boards, election boards, things like that. All of those feed into the court system, especially if you have elections. You can run for those, you can help volunteer there. All of those things will make a difference in making sure that uh, candidates you want. Uh, 
actually get a fair and free election, and then you can support them. And as always, get involved in your local political party. And how much do you think, like, uh, so for example, Ryan Mears is the first prosecutor in my county that I've, uh, probably the third total prosecutor whose first name that I knew. Um, but like one of his initiatives is like he doesn't prosecute uh, low level drug crimes like marijuana possession mm-hmm. because, you know, he's the he his platform, if you will, is actually reducing recidivism by not unnecessarily feeding people into the criminal justice system who don't really belong there. Um, but like, how much do you think someone like an elected prosecutor, like how, what, what is their like general effect on, you know, the sort of um, like. I mean, I guess everything, like the money spent on the criminal justice system mm-hmm. in a particular county or like how much do they affect things like who goes to prison in which counties? They are incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. So another way that you can affect the judiciary is indirectly. <laughs> and a lot of people who are well-meaning go into the public defender's office. That's been like the classic place um, for criminal reform, uh, criminal justice advocates to go But you make a really good point that the first mover in every criminal case is the prosecutor because they're the ones who decide who to charge and with what, which is a massive advantage. And we actually have some data on this, that this is at the federal level, but I think it illustrates my point that um, we all know about the uh, racial disparities in sentencing um, for drug crimes. Right, that Black Americans historically have been significantly punished more for the same offenses as white Americans. Yep. So at the beginning of the Obama administration, we still had this stubborn racial uh, despair, uh, racial sentencing gap for drug crimes, but it disappeared by 2016 after the eight years of the Obama administration. It was non-existent. Wow. And um, then it started creeping back with wow. the Trump administration. Shocker. But there was an an analysis of this by some wonderful criminal justice scholars, and they found that about 80% of that effect was caused by changes in prosecutorial decisions. Wow. So, and the rest, about 10% was difference in um, judges and then some other changes to statutes. Hmm. But 80% of that, roughly, was caused by simply... The uh, U.S. attorneys <laughs> who were uh, prosecuting these cases making different choices of oh. who to prosecute, what to charge them with, what plea deals to accept, etc. So if you think that there's over-policing, if you think that, that, uh, if you think that there are significant criminal justice problems and you're an attorney, run for your local prosecutor's office. Don't just necessarily become a public defender. If you're not an attorney... Guess what? Same thing as before. These are generally elected positions. Get involved. Support the campaign. Th- there is a massive racial disparity and sex and gender disparity in elected prosecutors in the United States. 98% of elected prosecutors are white. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the, and the majority of those are men. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, there was a list. There was like a picture of uh, 20 elected prosecutors and one of them was a black woman. And the joke was statistically she shouldn't even be there. So that's the real problem with the picture. Ah. <laughs> um, so, yes, there is an insane uh, gender and race disparity for elected prosecutors. 
So particularly if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, this can be a wonderful way to serve your community. And note that a judge can't (laughs) force you (laughs) to prosecute something you don't want to because prosecutorial discretion is a thing. Okay, this is this is like I think this always brings me back to like I have a, a close friend of mine is now a prosecutor prosecutor in Peru, which is like a little rural rural. Why is that word so hard to say? Rural <laughs> county in like central North uh, Indiana, um, and like personally has like been personally responsible for like lowering these recidivism rates but at the same time no one like however pathetic the uh voter turnout is for you know municipal elections it's like somehow even worse for things like judges and prosecutors like how do we get it how do we get to a place where people like you and me could set up like you know an information depository right like (laughs) somewhere where uh you know, facts about these people can be easily accessible. Like, what can we do? What can we actually do for this? So this was something that local reporting used to do. Yeah. This is like a really, uh, it's a really big problem that you point out that there used to be someone, you know, sitting at these courthouses uh, reporting on what judges and prosecutors did. That's one of the major problems and it's hard to replicate or replace. So if you have a local newspaper, support them. Get them to do that kind of coverage because that's ultimately where that sort of um, community knowledge has historically resided. Uh, it's just extremely expensive to replicate on scale yeah. that, you know, this is something I've looked into and I've thought about and it's just an unbelievably vast task. So having centralizing it isn't really the way. I think that what we need is basically a wholesale revival of our local community newspapers. Um, And in a way that also helps bleed some of the national politics out of it, that um, a lot of people view local politics as like too petty or or not meaningful enough to be worth the time. And it's honestly like more impactful in most people's day-to-day lives. I, that, that, misconception about voting in local elections and on things like ballot propositions and you know like oh well it doesn't really have the same effect as voting in a national election what the fuck are you talking about it's exactly the opposite of that like (laughs) these are you know just because you pay fewer you know uh, county and state taxes you know i i wish that i could get people to imagine it this way which is like you in your federal taxes, you hand somebody a stack of cash and they hand it to somebody else and they hand it to somebody else and they hand it to somebody else. In your municipal elections and your state elections, you can feed the money directly into the machine. You know, it's one of the mm-hmm. few places where you can hold your money, put it directly into the whatever vending machine of uh, civil life and watch it work for you. Like, you know, Indianapolis has the red line and it's a it's a bus line. It's an express bus line that runs right through the middle of the city. It's like, uh, and it works and people use it. And I drive by it all the time. And the, the, we invested in electric buses, which are dead silent, which is a really kind of spooky experience the first couple times. But I, how do we get people interested? How do we get people to believe that this is where like their actual Im- impact can be maximized? It's a lot of it is just building the community and making it mm-hmm. sort of muscle memory. That by being the hub, 
that people go to, whether, and it can be as simple as making it your house, just mm-hmm. having like local me- organizing meetings every week at your house for like-minded people and working through those organic social networks. Hmm. Make it fun, make it uplifting, make it like a real community because you'll bring in people who might not be quote unquote political in their own mind, but they have things that they want, Hmm. right? They have things that, you know, maybe they need uh, uh, speed bumps in their neighborhood. Maybe they want a bus stop to stop closer to them because of an elderly neighbor. Maybe there's a bridge near them that needs some fixing. Um, and they notice it and, you know, other people haven't. And it's important that we get it fixed before it falls down. These are the sorts of things that you can start building really, you can build more influence than you know. Um, oh, another thing that in some local jurisdictions, there are some, re- there, there may or may not be, you ha- you'll have to look it up um, for your where you live. There may be some sort of um, disciplinary or recall ability for a local yep. politician or judge um, who's abusing their power. A lot of times, um, <laughs> there's a particularly egregious example of a, uh, in the South of a family who had been like prosecutors in this one County for like <laughs> decades and decades and decades. <laughs> and they were like hiding multiple murders. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Please look up the Murdoch family. M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And we're not talking people who, you know, are even like state level influential we're just talking local county level influential um and people feel powerless because they're alone but by having even 10 or 15 or 20 people um who organize with you each of those people knows an entire network of others you can make a huge huge difference and that does echo out that like taking care of your part of the world will eventually um and if enough people do that in their part of the world, you will find like-minded people and it will ex- and it will um, accelerate and resonate. And I also want to like, like, so for example, um, my preferred candidate, uh, Andrea Hunley, um, who is a IPS principal and just like really, really well positioned to like actually represent our district and the state. Um, but the way that she gains so much traction is just like AOC. Like she put her tennis shoes on the ground and that's not just her, but like I did stuff and like uh, you, she, you have to start with, like you said, this sense of like, this person gives a shit about exactly where you live. And this used to be such a common thing in, in union organizations. And it's like one of the reasons that conservatives are so keen on destroying unions is it's also like a really powerful campaigning platform and it gathers a lot of people together again with a shared interest uh and you know gives them a platform to talk about candidates but you can do this for any reason like you can just have a fundraising dinner you don't like Uh you can just have like a 40 dollar plate fundraising barbecue in your backyard that's perfectly that's that is fundraising it still (laughs) all goes in the pot And you can, it doesn't even, I mean, and it doesn't even need to be fundraising for a specific thing that you could do it for, um, let's say it's not a political thing. It's Mm. just for, you know, getting a a stop sign in this neighborhood or raising money for speed bumps near the school or, you know, laptops for the kids in the school for whatever it is, you know, uh, an additional computer or a librarian in the library. All of these things might not seem outwardly political, but they build your ability to influence people. Yes. So that when something comes around or you you notice a problem in your community, 
you can speak on it and people will listen. And they know that it comes from a genuine place of caring about them. You're not doing it because you're brainwashed or whatever it might be. Um, but instead, because you've shown yourself to be a caring, um, a person who cares for them and the people they love, that ultimately is what can persuade. Can I tell you about an idea that someone wrote on my Facebook wall that like blew my mind because it's such a good idea? We got to get campaign dates going. We got to get uh, like there should be an option on like Tinder or whatever where it's like, I would like to work. I would like to volunteer for a campaign with my date. And then you can go to a political office and get some literature and have a little lit drop while you talk about, you know, the change you wish to see in the world. Yeah, I was uh, talking to a, a wonderful, um, uh, he was—he would be considered theoretically a, mag, uh, a justice of the peace, but he was a, a non-lawyer judge in Texas that he had been um, in law enforcement for his career beforehand. And people in his community liked him and said, you know, we'd really like you to run for this uh, yeah. magistrate judge position. And he was like, I don't know, like I've retired. I, I don't know if I want to do something big like that. But then... Um, a couple things happened that impacted him and his family directly. Um, and he was really upset by the way that the local judge handled it. So yeah. he ran against him and lost. But he said that losing the first time was the best thing that happened to him because he realized what it would take to win and how hard it was. So the next time the election cycle ran came around, his wife, you know, um, served as his campaign manager and they knocked on every single door in his county. Awesome. Just literally drove, per- like, <laughs> just him, his wife, and his dog going door to door talking to every single person. I love that. And he won. Yep. And uh, he's been there for several years now. He's a great guy. He said, you know, he wasn't a lawyer, so he he had to go to judge school and he, he learned a lot of stuff. But he said most of the things that he, he deals with are sort of small local issues that don't necessarily require, you know, like a, for- a formal sentencing or something, yep. but he's resolving disputes in a way that he, that he thinks will best benefit his community. Yep. Yep. That is a hugely influential uh, position. And you note that all that was needed there was the willingness to try, lose, and then keep trying. Yeah. Um, and now, now it's his job. He loves it. He's like, it's way better than retirement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, and, and yeah. Not to not to be a downer or look on the dark side, but on the flip side too, like, you know, it pays to be involved with your local, like, you know, for example, like city courts. We have city courts all over uh, the Indianapolis suburbs. Uh, but you know, <laughs> if you haven't seen uh, all the Queen's horses, like a lot of um, corrupt bullshit can also happen in those small courts. So like, it benefits you, and it's it's going to save you a lot of tax money. To make sure that you know how people are spending your money, and that includes paying judges, and if those judges' actions are actually creating a more safe neighborhood for you. Yeah, it does. And these are the things that really do make a difference. Um, because most – so there are there are different levels of courts, but a lot of local courts are sort of like less formal <laughs> – Mm, Um, they might, it might be like a trap, a local traffic court that meets once a week, right? If you're in a small jurisdiction. Yep. So if you're an attorney and there's no nonprofit there, you can volunteer your time by going on that night in that place and representing everyone who comes up there if they choose to have you represent them. That can be a fabulous way to help people not get nickel and dimed by the court. Yeah. 
Um, you can also volunteer to be one of those those judges in those situations, although that's fraught in and of itself. Yeah. Um, look for local organizations. And this is, I mean, sometimes family courts, sometimes all these sort of low-level courts that people overlook, that they see the Supreme Court, they see all the big stuff going on. Yeah. But they're the, this entire ecosystem underneath it. Um, and I, I mentioned specifically traffic court. Because it's the kind of court that most people interact with the most. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and it makes a huge impact on people's livelihood from the f- paying fees and fines that they can't afford to suspension yeah. of driver's license or revocation of commercial driver's licenses. That can make a huge difference. Also, bankruptcy courts. Um, oh. Yeah. I was going to say real quick, uh, because you mentioned traffic courts, but like... Uh, traffic courts are also, I didn't realize this until I worked for the uh, lawyers for the local Mexican consulate, but like, that's also a place where a lot of um, ICE enforcement meets up mm-hmm. with traffic court enforcement. And even though it sounds like your like local, you know, fucking speeding ticket enforcing judge is like not a big deal. You know, if that person is like a fucking MAGA dipshit and they think that like there should be no immigration of anyone ever, you know. That person is going to, like, pass those files on to, like, an ICE officer, whereas somebody else who might, you know, be more like you and me might say, like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to reduce your fine to $20. Get out of here before ICE pulls up in the parking lot, you know? And there are a lot of great uh, traffic judges uh, I've worked with. There's one in particular um, who got actually, like, called out by her mayor in a bad way for not generating enough revenue for the city. Beautiful. Um, and it's because she she – her jurisdiction is primarily black and brown and poor. Yep. So she tries to find non-monetary forms of restitution because she yes. knows how hard it is for them to pay them back. And the idea that she's supposed to think of her court as a revenue driving agent for the state is really freaking weird. Yeah. Um, I love her a ton, but these are the sort of innovative things you see. But like, for example, the, some of the earliest cases on self-driving cars and AI are happening at traffic courts. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, of course. I wouldn't have even thought of that. But like, yes, of course. And let's say you're a journalist. I know that some of our listeners are journalists. Like maybe donate a couple hours a week to covering local affairs, covering the local courts, letting people know in your community uh, what's going on, going to town board meetings and speaking about what you've seen, raising awareness. Um, A lot of times there's... People who speak at those sort of meetings get a bad rap as sort of busybodies or, you know, <laughs> that isn't true. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, some of them are. We all know that. But local politics thrives. Like the bad behavior thrives when they don't, when they, when they know no one's paying attention. Oh my God. I, I, I know that it's chuggy technically, but uh, Parks and Recreation was a great show because it was great about like, pretty accurately portraying how local government works and like one of the things that i thought was really beautiful about it is like in they you know they made a joke about of course you know uh public forums but um you know without all those people in there a lot of times it was leslie who was advocating for the health and well-being of her citizens against you know the whatever i think it was like fat burger or something was the name (laughs) of the uh fast food place that was always trying to set up on a new corner you know um it it that's that is really truly how like your sausage gets made in your hometown like that is how they decide to put 
the liquor store next to the gas station down the street from the hospital, you know? Yeah. And these things are so important and it doesn't take that much. That's the thing that, you know, if you might say, well, you know, I can organize 20 people. That doesn't seem like enough. 20 people seems like a lot when you're at one of those meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you have 20 people who all are speaking and agreeing with the same thing, that is powerful. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, if you're, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, if you're trying to get like a little ballot prop, you know, like because everyone's government is so different, you know, something like a stop sign or something uh, like a speeding, uh, a speed bump in your neighborhood could come up as like a ballot prop. And like, if you and 50 of your neighbors are really excited about it and want that and like nobody else gives a single shit, that's all it takes is like 50 people <laughs> going and showing up and like voting yes because everybody else will vote nothing. They don't yeah. care. So there's a, in, in sort of, there's some theories about the way, the way that laws get passed. But one of them, they basically break groups up into like high intensity, high organization, low intensity, Mm. low organization, right? Mm. And then they also talk about costs. So there are a lot of things that would benefit a lot of people, right? Like say uh, gun regulation would benefit the public broadly. But generally, even though the public is in favor of gun control, they don't particularly care. They don't put a lot of weight on that issue. Plus, they're not organized. Um, and the gains are diffuse, yeah. right? So it, although it might benefit everybody and make society better, each person only gets a little bit, bit of it. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the other side, you have a smaller number, a much smaller number of people who benefit from there being loose gun regulations. But, they, but they're incredibly intense about it because they reap an outsized percentage of the rewards yep. of having loose gun regulations, meaning the, specifically the gun manufacturers, right? The NRA. Um, so even that's why they get legislation or block legislation that most other people want. They get what they want even though they're outnumbered, which shouldn't happen in a democracy. Yep. But it's because of their intensity, their organization, and the salience of the issue. Um, to their particular constituency base. So if you are, for a local issue, a small, organized, determined group about something, and most other people don't care, you're going to get your way. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you see this often, you've started seeing some of this in like uh, school board elections for the anti-CRT people. Yep. And how incredibly organized they are. And they don't represent the majority of parents, not by far. But they are super intense about it. They don't shut the fuck up. Um, and most people are just like, just give them what they want so they go away. What, what also boggles my mind about this is the reason those people are so high intensity and so organized is because in their mind, you know, the, the stakes are life or death. When like, in reality, <laughs> on the opposite side, the stakes are very, very much life or death. And like we can't get the people who are on the right side of, of a bunch of historical issues mm-hmm. to act as if I know we've, I know I've said this before, but like if one thing is going to just like kill me dead on the spot, it is this like societal insistence that centrism is like the most morally correct place to be. Like the middle is just always the most reasonable like stake to claim on any issue when it's like, Oh no, like, 
but, but then like you ask people about like what they actually want like universal health care and like you know lower drug costs or whatever and you're like okay you're a democratic socialist like i don't know how to tell you in any other way but like look me in the eyes you're a democratic socialist that's actually what you are and it's like <laughs> no i'm a centrist like <laughs> i'm gonna shoot myself but this is something that Again, you can be overcome by getting people to just simply, I mean, this sounds cheesy and kumbaya, but it's true, is that like you you can't start with that conversation right. in persuasion. Right. You need to start with the, how's your, how's your family? Yeah. Um, and I know that feels circuitous and silly, right? That like why to get to universal healthcare do we need to invest time in like getting to know people's families? It's because like people, if people are going to listen and change their minds, it's because of people they trust. Yeah. Not just randos, even no matter how educated or informed you are, there's this pernicious thing on the, on the left, especially among uh, technocrats that like the problem is that other people don't have enough information. Uh, I suffer from that personally. I did. I, I did too for a long time. Uh, <laughs> but it's increasingly clear to me that like having been with, having spent a lot of time with people I, I know and love in my life who, pers- who still nonetheless support, uh, political, um, causes I find deeply detrimental. The problem wasn't the information. It wasn't. The problem was, is that they got, they got information from a bunch of sources and they only listened to the information they got from sources they trusted. Right. And the only way to get them to listen to me was to get them to trust me that way too. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, they still do things that piss me off, like vote for Trump once. (laughs) But the key there is not to just be like, I'll never, I don't, you're not my family anymore. You're not my friend. Like that's not getting you anywhere. Um, It's about, you know, gently and lovingly and then screaming into a pillow when you're, you know, out of their presence. (laughs) Um, continuing to have those conversations so that their minds will change over time. Um, let, let me ask you, I, I have my own version. So uh, the, one of the most fruitful openings to a conversation about like changing someone's mind is, you know, I don't really feel like my tax dollars are a very good investment. I, don't, I just don't feel like I see a very good return on that investment. Don't you feel like that? And I, I've never met one person who's like, Nope, everything is A-OK. Male, healthcare, got it all, you know? I actually feel like we get a great return on our investment for our tax dollars <laughs> because we pay a relatively small amount in taxes um, mm. compared to other, other places. But, like, for example, I, when I turn on the faucet where I am, I don't ever have to think about whether or not the water is going to poison me. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, I, not, that's not true everywhere in America. It's not true everywhere, but it is for most places in America – you know, if I go to the store, people like are mad about inflation. I am too. Milk costs a crazy amount. But I don't have to worry that there's anything in there other than milk. Yeah. I don't have to worry that the food that I'm getting is going to poison me, that the toys that I'm getting are going to poison my children with lead po- with lead, lead or mercury poisoning like they had in China at one point yep. where they're using like lead-based paints in children's toys. Um that I know that I that I can travel, for example, I'm going to be traveling again with the Bulldog moving once more across the country using <laughs> our interstate highway system. I, I don't have to worry that it doesn't connect to this state. <laughs> I, I can just do it. 
I can, I can just do it. I know that, you know, the mail is annoying sometimes because it's been purpose, purposefully sabotaged. Yeah. But the fact that, <laughs> that the post office is a thing and yeah. delivers items quickly and efficiently everywhere in the United States and around the world for relatively small amounts of money <laughs> is not something that existed in most times in human history. Like, we live in a time of freaking everyday miracles. And do I wish that there are things that the government did better? Yes, 100%. There are things I wish that the government did better. But then when I look at like the the uh, private alternatives, like compare the cost of the post office to say, you know, FedEx. FedEx costs more <laughs> to get an item from point A to point B. And also a lot of the time FedEx is subcontracting with the postal service. I was, I was also going to, I was also going to tell you, uh, according to my last, uh, shipping charges, actually, uh, Brown, oh, Brown did it for me for cheaper. So, you know, just saying, uh, yeah, that there are some, there are some exceptions. And one of the reasons why that might happen is because of the way Republicans have totally fucked over the post office. Um, that is not that. I mean, there's there are a lot of technocratic reasons for that, but and I do want to say that happened in the last two years. Like, yeah. that is that happens so quickly that the prices, quote unquote, equalized uh, between like private carriers and USPS. Like, it is such an obvious outcome of someone like Louis Joy like having <laughs> investments in private mail carriers. Just saying. Yeah. Um, also, I'll never forget, this is like my favorite, um, you know, anecdote about my British high school teacher who was like, you American kids are so spoiled by your interstate system. You have no idea what it's like to travel through England and it takes you six hours to get somewhere that it would have taken two and a half hours in the United States. It's true. <laughs> no, it is. It is 100 percent true. Uh, another thing that always that always strikes me as like vaguely miraculous <laughs> Uh, about our uh, about our system uh what the government has managed to achieve that was not the case was uh weather weather predictions mm. that the national weather service just provides free weather information <laughs> yeah. that you know the national weather service power like you know weather.com the owner of which is a big Trump supporter and who wanted to have uh, the National Weather Service turned over to him. Right. Um, they just repackage, repackage National Weather Service data. They don't right. do any actual weather forecasting. And our forecasting now is multiple times better than it was when I was a kid. Yep. Um, which is an extremely an, an impressive feat. But like, for example, now we get tornado warnings, uh, bad weather warnings in much, much faster. So this saves lives because it lets warnings go out sooner so people have more time to find shelter. And this is one of those small invisible things because you'd never it's hard to like count the bodies, the people who didn't die in a tornado, <laughs> the people who managed to, you know, make it into the basement uh, cellar and didn't wind up in Oz. Right. Hard to count. Um but we know that they exist. And like these minor miracles are being done at all levels of the government every single day. I personally agree with you, but I'm saying when we talk about changing the minds of people who oh. think differently from us, you know, like it's always, if you're going to try to go for a Reagan Republican, the one 
thing you can guarantee to get them to agree on is their tax dollars are a bad investment. Whether or not that's true, I I don't personally feel that way, but uh, you know, it's hard to remind people that like the reason that you get um you know, for example, um, immunotherapy for lung cancer, right? Like an incredibly effective and low impact cancer treatment is like because the National Cancer Center is funded by like <laughs> your tax dollars. And like now we're better at treating cancer yeah. and these two things are related. Yeah. And, and I'm going to get also just briefly get back to the courts for a minute. Yes. Um, the courts cost about 2% overall mm. of uh of like the courts law enforcement like the vast the biggest cost in the justice system are the police yeah <laughs> everything else is super cheap so when people are saying are saying like you know uh that 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 might say like oh the judges should have their pay cut i think it's quite the opposite yeah i think it needs to be a more appealing career so we'd get uh people willing to stay longer yep. um also lifelong clerks and stuff it's, inc- it's an incredibly uh, cheap and effective thing to do. Um, I want to bump up to the state state level, though, um, because state politics can feel a little bit farther away, and yep. the mechanisms are a little more are, are, are a little more complicated. So, still, in a lot of jurisdictions, uh, judges are elected at the state level, mm-hmm. um, and I'll, I know that these are the lines of the ballots that a lot of us look at and go, "I don't." know who these people are (laughs) right and some systems have retention elections like they're appointed by the governor and then after a certain amount of time uh people have to vote to retain them or not yeah right theoretically this nods to oversight by the people but in practice nobody knows who they are so people so it's vaguely random and they almost always get retained um one thing you can do in those is to actually join an organization or help amplify an organization that does that sort of vetting already. Um, that in some places uh, like the NAACP or the ACLU or Planned Parenthood uh, might give you like a suggested um, either state level candidates, judicial candidates to support a sample ballot. Those are wonderful because they do, do those in a lot of places and they can be a really great shorthand. Um, especially for the races that we don't know a lot about. Because I know some people go in, they vote for the top line and they re- leave the rest blank. Don't do that. The <laughs> easiest, <laughs> easiest thing you can do is just like go to your, lo- like like look up your local uh, chapter for like the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or whatever. Yep. A lot of time they're going to have a sample ballot for you and they'll let you know where these p- candidates stand on particular topics. If that doesn't exist, guess what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> you need to make that resource for your yeah. community. And I know that sounds daunting. You don't have to do it alone, right? With those people that you've been working with locally, those people you've been organizing, you can have a night where what all of you, you all bring laptops and then you all look up the decisions on certain topics that are important to you by those judges. Um, and you can, the all uh, decisions are publicly available. Yeah. Find them, look them up figure out whether or not they're, they're representing or they're, they're deciding uh, issues that you care about in a way that's important to you, and then work with local organizations to get that information to their members and to the public. I love this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this together in a Canva graphic, and then maybe we can post it up on our social medias. But like, I think that is a beautiful example of like 
just doing a little bit of work in a fun social way that like contributes positively to a campaign and like adds a little bit of you know resources like real resources that are not right-wing nut job fear-based you know uh the the flyer sent out that it's like vaguely suggestive that like maybe <laughs> jewish i don't know yeah uh, you know that is a really important and powerful thing to counteract that and like it's it's easy to forget sometimes because they're so loud and they're so intense that there are so many more of us than there are of them but that's a great way to like get that solidarity feeling going and like do a little bit of work and get a lot of payoff from it and it also makes you credible member of your community. So you're yeah. someone that people will have questions and they'll go to and you'll be able to either answer those questions or say, you know what, let me do a little bit of research on that and get back to you. Yep. And that kind of influence is amazing. And that's also the kind of positioning that lets you run for a local office uh, in the future, being uh, you know, an, a local alder person um, or being on you know, your, city, your city's board or whatever. These are hugely impactful um, positions and they set you up, even if you don't want to go into politics long term, they do set you up. I have a a friend of mine who uh, is in New York. She's thinking she never wanted to get into politics, but she's been thinking recently. Um, She's an immigrant from uh, Russia and she's moving in and she's Jewish and she's moving into a Russian Ukrainian part of Jewish part of New York. Yep. And one of the reasons why she's she's getting a place there, uh, she's buying a place there, is because it gives her a base of support. Yep. Um, that she knows she knows people. There, Im- a lot of them are immigrants. She speaks the language, um, so that she can make an impact in her community in a way that only she can. Yep. Right. And it's these little things, it's these small decisions we make about whether or not we're willing to give up our our nights and our weekends. Um, and when what you find is that you're actually not giving them up, <laughs> that instead of doom scrolling through Twitter or whatever, you're with people and doing tangible, real things that make a difference in your community. And you feel that you don't need to go to Twitter to know what's going on. Oh, also, I did not. I was so afraid of phone banking last year and I or in 2020 and I didn't really know what it's about. I don't really like talking on the phone, like whatever. And uh, I signed up to do it in Georgia for the Warnock campaign. And um, you're not you're not calling people who are like ideologically opposed to you. You're calling registered Democrats and you're just there to say like, hey, it's really important for you to go out and vote for this person. Like just remind them what the stakes are. And it ended up being a really affirming process for me. And you just sign up through uh, the website and you get hooked up with a Slack channel and it, they provide all the resources that you need. It's very, very easy. Mm. Um, and it turned out it was a really positive experience. And even if it's just like literally 10 minutes, if you make two phone calls, I promise that's a huge deal. That is massive. Like 10 minutes every week, you know, get, you know, eight, six or eight weeks out from a local election. And by that time you've impacted a whole bunch of people. So get into it. It's awesome. You'll, you'll, it's, it's so much less intimidating than it sounds. Oh yeah. And if you're a person who prefers not to be on the phone, but you like seeing people and talking to people face to face, canvassing is a ton of fun. Yep. Um, I'm a really social person. You tend to do it in pairs. So often you can go along with a friend. Um, you get to be outside, you get to go to uh, communities you might not otherwise be in. In the 2008 campaign, I was living in Chicago, but we went to Gary, Indiana uh, to canvas, mostly just to remind people to turn out 
for Barack Obama. And um, it was an incredibly wonderful experience. I had never spent time in Gary before, um, but we got to talk to a whole wide swath of people. Everyone was really nice. Even the one person who said that, you know, Obama is a a White Sox fan, so he can't vote for him. (laughs) That's fine. Um, that was that was funny. We all got a good laugh, but most people were just thankful to get the reminder that we could give them a little postcard with the um, with the polling location and times. Uh, one thing that uh, that some nefarious political actors have done is start buying billboards that have wrong information yep. um, about voting dates and times and locations, so you can help counter the disinformation that way. And again, it also lets you know your community in a much more intimate way than you might have before. Meet people you might not have gotten a chance to meet before. I know that a crazy number of people I know don't know their neighbors. Yep. So especially with, I guess, with younger people who are more mobile, you know, I'm moving, I've moved all over the country. I'm hoping to stop moving at some (laughs) point. Um, that it can, it can be alienating. And this is a way that you can embed yourself in a community and feel personally fulfilled. Yeah. Um, oh, couple other ways. Um, some states, you'll have to look it up for your state. Some states allow recalls for judges. Yes. I was just going to say, there's also the recall process, which yeah. people make fun of California as being like a place of fruits and nuts. But like, it is... Uh, First of all, it's the fifth largest uh, global economy. If we broke it off, it would be uh, just be- just behind Germany and just above Great Britain. <laughs> yeah. uh, but one of the reasons that they have that is they have an incredibly robust and simple to navigate recall uh, system. And basically every governor has faced a recall, which I don't really think is a bad thing because it keeps people engaged and, and like regularly people, you know, there are calls to go out and vote. And, and it's just like part of the culture in California is to vote all the time. And by mail, it works yeah. really well. Uh, so a lot of states have these recall mechanisms. So if there's a judge you think is doing an egregious job and needs to be replaced, you can organize a recall against them. And do not do this on a whim. Yeah. I just want to put that out there. The the judge really needs to be doing something egregious to try to remove them from office um, outside of the cycle. But if they are, go ahead and do it. And one thing I'll say is that like just facing a recall is incredibly humiliating. Yep. Um, Especially for a judge. And sometimes the people will just resign (laughs) because they just don't want to go through it. Yeah. Um. Or they might, you know, move on to another position because these judges usually do have other options. They might move back into private practice or whatever, which then gives an opportunity to replace them with somebody better. Um, Or you can, as always, get involved with your uh, local and state uh, political parties so that you can try to shape who actually gets to uh, win the nomination for those particular uh, seats. Local judges are incredibly important. State judges are incredibly important. Although some are still appointed by um, governors that differ state to state. Um, But remember that we are hoping, for example, with the case for abortion rights, for state courts uh, to uphold abortion rights. So this is is an issue where a lot of the things that we're seeing, even if we lose or on a federal level or we don't get what we want to see on a federal level, we can still see it happen at our state and local level. Um, so be sure that you're 
involved there. And once we move up to the federal and SCOTUS level, you're going to notice I have fewer answers. Yeah. But this is still at the state level. You can still have an outsized impact. I was going to say, let's move on to the the federal level because uh, federal and SCOTUS um, is kind of like a tenured professor, you know? Mm -hmm. How do we... How do we deal with this whole situation where like a bunch of people lied about uh, decided law and then became SCOTUS judges and uh, now our, our um, you know, bodily autonomy rights are gone? Okay. So everything I've given you now up till now has been practical and we see it done all the time. We're getting into a more of a theoretical realm. Oh boy. Okay. Um, of things that theoretically can happen. Okay. But- and I, I'm going to lay out four possible things that can be done for federal judges and for uh, Supreme Court justices. So all of these are Senate confirmed, right? And lifetime appointments. Yeah. So that means that, you know, there was a, uh, a Trump uh, fe- federal district court judge who uh, was raised to the bench with a lifetime appointment who's younger than I am. Yep. And had tried zero cases, much like uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who is now on the Supreme Court. Like, I had more trial experience than she did, and I barely yep. have any. <laughs> yeah. um, so the problem with life tenure – so the life tenure is meant to insulate them from political pressures. Theoretically, there is a mechanism to remove them. So the first mechanism is to get them impeached and removed from the bench. But this essentially never happens. Okay, good. Um, Off to a good start. Yeah. The United States basically never does this. There's like one example in U.S. history. Um, and there was one who was going – there was one justice who was going to be impeached uh, but got – because he was like going to be brought up on bribery charges, he just resigned. Great. Um, and this essentially never happens and requires a two-thirds vote and it's just – it's not a realistic um, venue. Yeah. If there were there were some who clearly should be impeached, I would argue that Justice Thomas, because of his refusal to recuse himself from sitting on cases uh, that directly impact his wife, yeah. um, should be re- impeached because he can't be trusted with power without for, with wielding the power of his position uh, uh, without um, personal prejudice. He's shown that he allows personal prejudice in, but that's not happening. But that's the first theoretical way to get rid of them. Okay. <laughs> the second, I mean, I, I'm going to give a more practical way is that like there's turnover in the federal judiciary every year. Yeah. And SCOTUS more occasionally. The Senate and the president gatekeep that. Yep. So the president nominates and then the Senate approves. Now just by majority vote. So that's the advice and consent uh, that, you, that you often hear. Uh, the president nominates and then the Senate advises and consents uh, for those nominees. So we have, so basically whichever way you go, you should be working for and voting in and campaigning for presidents and Senate candidates um, who will put in judges you want. Again, uh, we're back to, you can vote phone bank in any state. So like, uh, you know, for example, phone banking against uh, Dr. fucking Oz in Pennsylvania uh, or Georgia or any one of these swing states, you should get in there. Yeah, 100%. And again, like one of the reasons why I wanted to start at the local level is that that's how you gain 
uh, that's how you gain power. That's how you impact your, uh, you know, the, your community, but it will also let you influence people to work on these, on these other projects as well. Mm. You know, that during midterm elections, during the presidential campaigns, you can be also working at the local level, but then maybe have one night a week where you all phone bank um, for your Senate can for a Senate candidate, or maybe you'll do a postcard writing campaign to voters in swing States, um, which is something my mom did. She'd handwrite postcards to swing voters, um, ho- trying to get them. These are people who are registered to vote, but generally didn't vote yeah. in previous elections that the democratic party organized or one of the, some democratic organization, um, organized a letter writing campaign. And she actually got postcards back. Awesome. Uh, which was amazing. And she said she sent out like a few hundred and she got like eight back. But like it was incredibly rewarding and totally worth it. Eight yep. voters, like totally worth it. I, not um, to sound like somebody trying to promote a, a bringer comedy show, but like, listen, if we all get eight people to show up, like, <laughs> you know, I, I to borrow a phrase from harvey milk but like if everybody who believed in this stuff just finally came out and voted for the democratic candidates who believe what they believe in you know we would never have another elected republican at least under you know their current platform ever again but there's a reason why uh the republican party's trying everything to do voter suppression obviously (laughs) right it's it's pretty clear um so that's the, that's the second and most practical way. You have to make sure you change the composition of the presidency and the Senate because that's how you influence SCOTUS. That's how you influence the federal judiciary. There are two other potential options. Um, these are more extreme options or they're considered more extreme. And I'm going to go with like the normal version and the super constitutional hardball version. Okay. So... Theoretically, um, the size of the court is determined by statute. Um, (laughs) So it doesn't have to be nine. And it hasn't always been nine. And so there are the normal ways to go about this, like the court packing scheme of FDR, Mm -hmm. which people saw as a failure, but it wasn't a failure. The simple threat of packing the court, even though we didn't do it, managed to get the Supreme Court to completely change its jurisprudence and start, you know, ruling that the New Deal was constitutional. <laughs> I'm just saying he 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 won. <laughs> he won yeah. that fight. Um, so the most normal way that people have been, like I've been talking about it, is just adding seats to the Supreme Court. Just by statute. Just needs uh, to pass the House and the Senate, signed by the President. It's a normal statute. Um. And they can raise or lower the number of justices as they see fit. Um, This is also true about the federal judiciary. (laughs) So you can expand and contract the federal judiciary. Normally, you could say you could add some, you know, some more federal judges if you wanted uh, more appointments of one type or the other. So that's a possibility is pushing on, um, is getting majorities in the House, Senate, and the presidency to change the size of the courts. The total constitutional hardball version is to dissolve the entirety of the federal judiciary (laughs) and then recreate it in its entirety, which has the effect of opening up every seat. Uh... So people have asked me before, well, you know, uh, know, uh, we need to play a constitutional hardball. 
And my answer to them is, I could take the Constitution and break it over my knee in an yeah. afternoon. Yeah. That a lot of people are like, but that sounds extreme. I'm like, that is still also constitutional. Uh, <sighs> they could Congress could shrink the size of the Supreme Court to one, kick off everybody, <laughs> other than, I guess, the Chief Justice, and then expand it to three million if Congress wanted to. Hmm. Is this is that a good idea? Probably not. Um, but I think it's better than, you know, uh, but I think we have to, that if you're thinking about creative ways to do it that are still constitutional, those things are all technically constitutional ways to go about court reform. I'm not saying that we should do them. I actually think that those would be bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if people, if, if if, for example, Republicans had the ability to do that or they felt they could get away with it, they might. And that would actually be within the text of the Constitution. Well, you know, the reason that we can't ever actually do anything is we do things in good faith and Republicans do things in bad faith. So we yeah. could do that and fix the judiciary for, you know, two years and then... Uh, another white hot ball of Republican rage would get elected to the presidency. And then we would just repeat this process literally every four to eight years. So there are some reforms to, uh, to the Supreme court that have been bandied about that are a little bit, um, possibly more workable. Hmm. Um, for example, having different Supreme courts for different types of topics, um, hmm. that you could simply have, you know, that the Supreme Court right now has historically low caseload. They take very, very few cases. Hmm. Um, and so you could simply say that, you know, we have these nine justices for these types of cases, these types of nine justices for these the specialty courts, essentially. Yeah. That This is not necessarily what the founders envisioned, but there are good arguments that this would be perfectly fine. Yeah. You could also have a rotating Supreme Court, that you would have every year um, a select number of justices, maybe one from each uh, circuit, would then sit on the Supreme Court for that one year and then cycle out the next year. I don't mind that at all. Yeah. There are a lot of possible ways. There are 18-year terms that every two years uh, a justice gets cycled out so that every president gets two appointments. Yep. There are a lot of creative solutions. That's a little bit harder because of the lifetime appointment clause. Uh but there are definitely constitutional workarounds. Those are a little more fanciful. It's much more straightforward to just increase the size of the court. So I think that is the most um, straight line, clear way to um, improve the functioning of the court. Yeah. Because we've no because one thing we know is that larger courts tend to be more centrist yeah. um, than smaller courts. And also it, so it would allow the court to take on more cases. And I think that would be a good thing. And at minimum, right, we'd have to add four seats. Am I correct in that? I would say that, yeah, that like a 13-person Supreme Court wouldn't be bad. I actually say 15 would probably be sort of like the perfect uh, size because then you'd anticipate retirements every few years. Sorry about uh, the... There's a fucking small dick brigade, like having their little motorcycle rally on my fucking residential street. But anyway, go ahead. And uh, so I, I actually think that, you know, a 15, uh, a, a 13 or 15 member court sounds about right. Mm. Um, that, that sounds about right to me. And there could, there are some 
other uh, different ref- court reforms that have been suggested. I think that that's a good compromise um, that is obviously constitutional, is historically grounded, and would solve some other problems at the court. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, uh, the, if we're going to, I, I really like this actual, like, separate courts for different subject matter, because, like, it, uh, especially with, um, you know, internet copyright and IP and, like, all of this, like, a whole new sort of frontier feels like it needs, like, it just feels like it needs some fucking technocrats, actually, on, you know, on the <laughs> squad. Some people under 40 who are lawyers who have worked in this field for a really long time, you know? Yeah, and this is one of the problems that the way that our justices are chosen now, um, basically, they've clerked on the Supreme Court, they maybe done a little work in private practice, mm. uh, and then uh, become uh, federal judges themselves. They don't really practice very much, and they tend to do, and they tend not to develop any particular expertise, yeah. um, that uh, Justice Ginsburg might be the exception. Uh, with her really strong grounding, uh, particularly around uh, rights and uh, sex and gender uh, rights. And then you get some judges with particular interests, like Justice Gorsuch is particularly interested in tribal law. Um, He does demonstrate some actual expertise there. But you get judges like uh, like Kavanaugh, who are just abject mediocrities. They don't express any real grounding in any field of the law. And it's just like painfully obvious that they're an empty robe. They're, uh, you know, I wouldn't say an empty robe so much as like a weird misshapen Muppet uh, that the (laughs) Federalist Society has their hand elbow deep in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like occasionally you get, uh, and I'll be generous, idiosyncratic justices like Justice Thomas, but in a larger court, Justice Thomas has much less of an impact that the sort of extremists just have a less of an impact because they have to persuade more people to go along with them. And that's much, much, much harder to do with sort of wild eyed theories. Also, like how can I just can we pause for a second and just appreciate the fact that like Clarence Thomas did literally nothing for like two decades and then just like. (laughs) Woke up one day and was just like, mm, fuck it, seditious conspiracy, let's do it. He just never really had interest in being part of a minority on the court. <sighs> he, ju- he, ne- he, he would write these dissents that no one paid any attention to mm. because they were freaking crazy because no one agreed with them. And now he's basically the, he's basically the shadow chief justice now. Cool. Um, it's not a great situation, at least even from like a legal scholar's point of view, that it's extremely hard to analyze the legal reasoning because it doesn't make any sense. It's just so clearly in bad faith that it's hard to sort of approach from a scholarly angle that has intellectual consistency or rigor. I mean, listen, come on, come on, come on, karma. Give us the old Scalia <laughs> treatment. Give us the old Scalia special. That's all I want. Yeah. So the last one is one that's maybe a little more esoteric, but does have grounding in the Constitution, that we could strip the Supreme Court of its appellate jurisdiction. What does that mean? Is that the Supreme Court has what's called original jurisdiction, meaning that like they are the court to hear certain types of cases. Mm. For example, maritime cases, because they don't happen within <laughs> the United States. They happen in international waters. The Supreme Court handles that. And the beginning of the Supreme Court, a ton of its jurisprudence was around maritime law. Hysterical. Right? Not something we think about today. 
A lot of it back then was about maritime law. So you'd want, you wouldn't want a particular state to handle it. You want it to be uniform in like, you know, in, in international waters. Great. Uh, the second thing are conflicts between states. Mm, right. Right. If states are getting into an argument, you can't have a state court fix it. You need the, the Supreme Court would have jurisdiction to hear and, and be the ultimate authority on those. But in terms of cases like we saw with like federal laws, which again, don't run into that power because they apply to the entire country. The Supreme Court handed itself essentially appellate jurisdiction. Hmm. And I know this seems a little weird to people, but like this was not necessarily the way that the founders intended the Supreme Court to handle is to be the ultimate decision maker for all laws. Yeah. Right. That, you know, you might have a situation where a state might disagree with the federal law, think it's unconstitutional, but the federal government passed it. That's the way it is, right? So theoretically, Congress could simply strip (laughs) jurisdiction and just say, no, this is what you're allowed to rule on. And you're not allowed to rule on these other things. That is much more technocratic, and I know that sounds a little esoteric, but it would be immensely impactful. I don't know in a good or a bad way. (laughs) Um, It's a little hard to tell, but it would basically make the Supreme Court a rump. It would make it an extremely unimportant court anymore. (laughs) I mean, you know, this is what we've been talking about, right? Like, uh, the Supreme Court is largely, it's dominated by... Uh, justices nominated by presidents who lost the popular vote. Uh, You know, this, you know, the ruling on Roe v. Wade in no way comports with what the overwhelming, you know, 70, 80 plus percent majority of Americans actually want. Like, uh, same thing with the, you know, (laughs) forced prayer on the sidelines. (laughs) Same thing with, you know, no, everybody really needs to be able to conceal a gun. I mean, you know, we need to get to a point where the day-to-day safety and like bodily autonomy maybe doesn't hinge on them. And I'm fine. I I think that's a, I think that's a really good idea actually. So so I want to make it clear that like when people like me talk about the court being completely unhinged in terms of like uh, jurisprudence, easy example is just from this week, uh, just from last week was the gun rights case. And uh, uh, was like, uh, striking downs New York, uh, New York's uh, carry laws, concealed okay. carry laws, and then, um, <laughs> then overturning Roe and Casey. That in Roe and Casey, they're looking at history and whether or not the law and whether or not abortion uh, was well rooted in, uh, deeply rooted in American legal history, um, and the answer they said was no. And be, and though I want to note that the right to an abortion has gone back fifty years. At this yeah. point. Yep. And but they did find the right to conceal carry as deeply rooted in American history. Although I want to note here that the Supreme Court struck down essentially zero gun regulations by the states until the 21st century. Great. That Second Amendment jurisprudence was was dead. Nothing happened in it for the first 200 or so years of our history. That like generally it was considered that as long as states didn't eliminate people's ability to buy and have guns, they could regulate them pretty much any old which way. Right? 
Yeah. So and the and the the carry laws that we're talking about in New York were similar to other states. Have been on the books for almost a hundred years, I think, in some version or another. Um, so this is what we mean that like they're applying theoretically historical approach and come out in a way that you would imagine to be backward <laughs> if you actually imagine that historical approach um, to be applied fairly and consistently. And it's because, as one of my, um, in a wonderful piece of scholarly analysis that one of my former con law professors said, it's because they're lying. <laughs> it's because they're lying about what their approach is. And he's like, there's not, a, there's not a ton to say about it beyond that. That, like, if you have a clear, consistent uh, application of an approach, you should be able to predict the way the cases come out. I, I just love, you know, the, the state should be able to decide. The state should self-regulate. Not this one, though. Not this state. Not about this. <laughs> and, I, and I also want to say here, like, would my reform, the proposed reforms, like expanding the court, would that fix it? I don't know. I think it would help. Um, I think it would help to some degree because it would help us put more qualified people on the court and not more Brett Kavanaugh's yep. on the court. I also think that we should have a more diverse background of people on the court. We should have some non-lawyers. We should have some people not from Ivy League schools with the exception of uh, Justice Barrett, who went to Notre Dame. I, I do accept that. Um, but we should also have some people who aren't Catholic. We have seven Catholics on the Supreme Court and two Jews. I did not realize that until a few days ago, that the two religions represented on the Supreme Court are Judaism and Catholicism. Yeah. Like, the idea of telling uh, one of the founding fathers that there are seven Catholics <laughs> on the Supreme Court, they'd be like, I mean, it'd be like spitting tea and rum everywhere. It'd be like, what? Yeah. Um, I think there should be more non-religious people on the court. I was I, like, uh, my fucking kingdom for a, for a elected official or SCOTUS judge who doesn't have to like say like, oh yeah, and I go to church. Like you can trust <laughs> me because I go to church on Sunday. I think that we should have people on the court who represent, for example, tribal backgrounds. Yeah. Um, that it's great that Justice Gorsuch is on there, but like, we would nice to be have you know someone who can actually represent uh, their own interests, yeah. not have to rely on on, on him to do that. Um, the fact that we're going to have our first female black justice ever with Taji Brown Jackson, it would be nice to have an Asian justice. Yep. It's insane that we've never had an Asian justice, uh, fastest growing minority group in the United States, hugely influential in the legal community, never like going to be a justice. Also, like, we straight up just took over, like, native Hawaiian land, and we're just yeah. like, hey, what's up, Guam? Um, yeah. Is it cool if we put a military base on here? And we have never had a Pacific Islander judge. It's like, hey, could someone ask us before you just sort of take over? That'd be cool. Yeah, so, uh, like, for example, I say that Goodwin Liu, <laughs> he's an associate justice on the California Supreme Court. Yep. Uh, he was actually nominated by the Obama administration for a federal court position. He would make an excellent first uh, Asian justice. I am particularly, I don't want it to be Sri Srinivasan. <laughs> <laughs> I know Sri Srinivasan is, you know, DC-ish and uh, no, 
Goodwin Liu much better represents <laughs> the political leanings of um, uh, of the Asian community. I know he's a little old. He's 51. <laughs> so I know that we're trying to put fetuses on the Supreme Court these days with law degrees. Um, but uh, if you want to ask me that, like, Goodwin Liu represents the best of the Asian American legal community, he would make an amazing justice. Um, and he is also just a really great guy. <laughs> I'll just say like, uh, from the little I've had to, I've gotten to, to work with him and know him, which is very little, but everyone else I know who's worked with him, talked with him. Uh, they all have only glowing things to say. There've been not a whisper of, um, gross stuff. So. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. Uh, so now we all have our assignments, which is to, uh, have a fun little pitch and dinner in which uh, you guys uh, gather some uh, voting resources or uh, go on a lit drop date or a canvassing date or do some phone banking or, oh God, I've already lost tra- track of all my a thoughts. A canvassing date is actually a really good idea. Because be number fun? one, you get to have conversation while you're walking place to place. Yep. So you get to personally, two... If there's never going to be an awkward moment because it's all awkward moments knocking on other people's yes! doors and you get to see how the other people deals with different situations, how they deal with stress, how they deal with rejection. Yeah. And you get to help process that together. And at the end, you're going to be hungry. And hopefully you have, if it went well, you can then go get dinner yeah. or if it goes badly, there's a natural see you later point. So I think we should have more canvassing dates. I say that to all the people out there, um, you know, you can do the dinner, dinner date after go out there, do the canvassing date. Um, it's going to go. And as you said, you know, you, you were posting a little on Facebook about sober dating. Yes. Um, I am a strong proponent of sober, sober dating. Me too. So I think that's a great way to see the person actually, cause they, you won't see them. They can't act their way through this. I was going to say, like, fuck how they interact with a waiter. Like, you know, how they interact with a hundred strangers. Boy, that'll give you a real idea of what they're like under pressure, you know? And there'll be frustrations. Are they someone who takes it out on you? Yep. Are they, do they support you the way that you support them? Um, yeah. And in over that time, too, like, you know, I think a really important thing, you know, with your values is, like, you know, are your values aligned? And, like, how do you react to, like... A world that goes against your values it's like do you become sort of like sullen and withdrawn or is it like you know a motivation extra motivating to get out there and you know meet the people and protect the cause you know exactly and you also get to really gauge their commitment that uh, oh, yeah. one of my friends was talking about how <laughs> working in a dc hospitality uh made them like want to kill everybody because <laughs> like they saw way too many dates where the guys would be trying to like, you know, name drop the entire time as opposed to just like having a conversation. Oh, man. Imagine LA dating is the same way. Ugh, that San Francisco. I heard a terrible story last weekend about how this like really cool, like awesome woman didn't realize she was getting negged because like she was out of the dating pool when like negging was originally a thing. And like, the idea of being negged in the year 2000 and goddamn 22 just sort of makes you want to just like, you know, at like the end of Gattaca, just hop right into that incinerator <laughs> and just like, take me to Valhalla. Oh, so you're, you're Jude Law? Yeah, I'm, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm wheelchair bound Jude Law in this. Yes. 
Speaking of which, if you haven't seen Gattaca, what an incredible film that is. Great held movie. Up. Fantastic movie. Yeah, probably hold up, you know, holds up some of the as as one of the best sort of um futurist sort of uh films. Anyway, we're at like an hour and a half. At some point we gotta we gotta call this quits. Sorry, okay, okay. This is so I think that you have it right. Do the do your little local meetups, have your have your canvassing dates, and then as we're th- focusing toward the midterms, right? then you'll be able to use the sort of local influence to work on multiple levels. You can look at your local judges, you can look at your state judges, and you can try to impact the races that will change the House and the Senate. Um, and I know that sounds like a lot of work, but this is what the conservative movement has been doing for decades. I know. They're like, you know, they have like fake fire and brimstone on their side. We need to like remind people that actual progress and actual hope is what's on our side because that fire and brimstone shit will get, will move those people out of fear every time. And we need to move people out of actual hope and actual sense of empowerment, you know? Yeah. And I try to remind people that like the right was trying to overturn Roe from the, from day one, from the day it was decided. Day one. Yep. And they lost and they lost and they lost for 50 years. Yep. For 50 years, but they never stopped. And they just kept getting, crazier and crazier and doing more and more obviously we don't want to be crazier but we have to show the same intensity yep we have to show the same dedication that i have not given any of you like there's no one one weird trick you know the one weird tricks i talked about about like making the court one person and then making it three million people like that's not sustainable yeah it it just isn't and and i'm sorry to say that but like we're gonna go through years of bad yeah so we have to buckle ourselves in and say, you know, maybe I might not be able to influence the number of people I want in this election cycle, but I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm going to keep building my local base. I'm going to keep helping the people of my community so that every single year, every single election, I'll be able to make a bigger and bigger impact. For sure. So, uh, by the way, speaking about having building something from the ground up and having a local impact uh metal honey foods is kind of uh on a big streak now you're i hear that you have some big news moving on up uh i am actually moving on up to the west side of indianapolis uh to a deluxe warehouse uh with a bay door uh and that's happening tomorrow my brain is melting um just because the last three months so just to give you some background about what's been going on in my world um in March, the people who bought the restaurant that I have been using for over a year now to make my honey um, said, you need to get out in five days so we can start immediate construction. Construction lasted almost two months, and I ended up having to like make alternate arrangements um, for meeting. Uh, I'm up over last year 87%, and I was meeting that need in just like a bunch of sort of temporary alternative kitchens and... Um, it was like literally the most stressful period of this entire business, like including the time when all the farmers market said you can't come here until you get a farmers market license, and I didn't know that. Uh, and so moving is like tomorrow. I'm gonna go get a massage at the um, you know the Asian massage place where they're just like kind of elbow dropping on you from the third rope, yeah. Um, because this has been the most stressful three months of business ownership and the fact that it's over 
and I finally moved my stuff out. And I want to tell you something about it off the air because I don't fucking know who <laughs> listens to this. But the fact that it's going to be fucking over is like a dream. And the next place that we're going is so perfect. And our landlord is so awesome. And he's just such a nice guy. And he reached out to us and like... It just went from a really shitty situation to like what seems like it's going to be a pretty great one. So thank you to Tom Hanley, who is out there running 913 Sports and just being like a generally really fucking cool guy. I think we should have him on the show because he has a really, really fascinating story that led him to where he is today. So anyway, Tom Hanley, you're the man. Thank you for pulling me and my my partner out of a tough spot. So, yeah. So bye, my honey. Buy yeah, my honey to- at metal at metalhoney.com so I can pay my fucking rent now. So <laughs> And also now you'll have you'll be able to have more throughput. So you can buy yeah. as much metal honey as you want. That's right. We are gonna have we're not only having a production space, but like a big warehouse space and in a really cool old historic building that used to be like a real like uh assembly line factory. So it just goes and goes and goes and it's uh I mean, it literally feels like my whole life is has just taken like a post-surgical, like brick hard, massive, painful dump. And like, I can finally poop normally again. It's incredible. That is the most, uh, maybe that's not the analogy that uh, PR people would tell you to use um, <laughs> to discuss your, your, your food business. Um, but I understand. And I just have to say, go use that go buy that metal honey what's the discount code again i think it's i think it's perp stew okay use discount code perp stew free shipping excellent for free shipping oh that's awesome so that way you can really can get all the metal honey you want that's right and and both my new items are finally online we will get those out to the labs for testing i'm just gonna do ph testing on ph and and uh botulism testing i don't give a fuck about anything else but (laughs) Uh, um, yeah, and we're going to have a special episode, special bonus episode this week um, that you're going to be seeing up in the feed in a couple days. So you'll also get extra perpetual stew bonus. Um, right. So that's going to do it for us this week. Um, this is the perpetual stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. I'm Sarah Merle. And until next time, stay curious. Bye. <laughs>